0: Ephesians, Ephesians 4, 7 through 16 is really kind of the larger section. But I want us to have a, an adequate amount of time to go through this. And so, what we're going to do today is I'm going to read 4, 7 through 16. You're going to follow along and you're going to say, Oh, this is what the forest looks like. And then we're going to look at some trees, okay? Picking up in, in verse 7, this is what Paul writes. He says, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Rhetorically, he asks, he says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who had descended, uh, who also is the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fulfill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes." Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. And so the point Paul is heading towards is is really a continuation of where he has been, and it's this, this radical concept of Christian unity where? In Jesus. Christian unity that takes place anywhere other than in Jesus is just a group of people agreeing to disagree. Okay? Christian unity that takes place anywhere other than in Jesus is just a group of people saying we have certain disagreements, but we're just going to agree to disagree on those things. Christian unity can only be healthy and maintained in as much as it takes place in Jesus. Now, what I want you to see in 7 through 10 is that. And what a lot of people get sidetracked on is in, in verse 9, and trying to wrangle out what exactly happened to Jesus in these three days after he died and before he rose again. This is not the subject matter Paul is concerned about in any way, shape, or form. So if that's what you're waiting for, you're going to be woefully disappointed, okay? But let's, let's walk through and actually see what he's trying to say. Now he starts it off, and he says in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now, the English somewhat obscures this. The English somewhat obscures this. But you'll, if you look just before this, what we, what we read at the end of our passage last week, starting in verse 4, that it was this idea of oneness, right? One was just this repeated refrain from Paul, starting in verse 4. He says, there's one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope, that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And so if I were to say to you, what is the most prominent number displayed in verses 4 through 6? You might say, one. one. Somebody back there said two. You weren't listening. But one and one together is two. But this is just one over and over and over again. And then he rolls into verse 7. You know what the first word that occurs in the Greek there is? One. What he wants us to understand coming through this, the centrality of unity that takes place in 4 through 6 is maintained in 7 through 10. The centrality of unity which is manifested in this explicit statement of faith. One faith, one hope, one God, one Lord. All of these things. He comes into this description of each one of us. Boom, he hits it right there. And so what this is telling us, what this is communicating to us is that we are one body, right? We are the church universal. We are manifesting. We are showing ourselves to be part of it here in our involvement in one church at a time. You can only be involved in one church at a time. You can only show yourself to be a member of one church at a time, one local body at a time. But then he comes and he says, well, how does this hit on the individual believer? Because, friends, you recognize the church is comprised, it is made up of individual believers. It's it's me, it's Joe, it's James, it's Susan, it's Ben. It's all of us together. And so he comes to us in verse 7 and he says, but one, but one. And we find out. He says, but grace was given to each one of us. And so you begin to think in your mind, okay, yes, I understand this. I know all about grace. You see, I was a horrible sinner in my past life, Matt. And I say, really, that's amazing. So was I. And you say, really, you? And I say, you know, yeah, you know, the Bible tells me in Ephesians 2 that I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And you say, really? That's the same thing my Bible tells me? And I say, well, friend, do you recognize that all of us were lost, all of us were dead, that God did an amazing work of regeneration and renewal in our hearts, and then he has made us alive? And you say, that's fantastic. Well, you and I, we have the same story. I say, well, yours is slightly different. You're a woman. I'm a man. There we go. look what he says he's not talking about that grace what he's talking about in this passage is what paul has has been talking about previously look at 3 2 look at ephesians 3 2 In ephesians 3 2 paul says writing to the ephesians he says assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of god's grace that was given to me for you so paul was entrusted grace for who for someone else So in this case, what we begin to recognize is that Paul's discussion of grace is decidedly different than his discussion of grace in Romans. What he's talking about here is this grace which God gives us for others. This grace which God gives us for others. Now going on this same vein and this same understanding, Paul continues in chapter 3, and in verses 7 through 9 we read this. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to what? The gift of God's grace. This is very similar to what we read here in chapter 4. The gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me for what purpose? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. And more than that, to bring to life for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things. This is how Paul sees grace working in his life, and this is what we see here in verse 7. You want to know how the church is maintained healthy and we represent one body? You use your gift, the grace that God has given to you, to help accomplish those ends. It's you working in conjunction, infused by, energized by the Spirit's outworking in your life. Do you see that here? It says grace was given to each one of us and recognize. look, it is particular. It is particular. He doesn't just hit us and say, you know what? I want everybody to be gifted with this understanding of of service. I want everybody to have this particular manifestation, this particular gifting. No, look what he says here. It is given according to the measure of Christ's gift. So each one of us, he comes to us as individuals, this God who has created you, this God who has made you in his likeness, in his image, who knows you intimately, who knows about that mole on the backside of your knee that you buy swimming trunks just low enough that they don't cover it. No one wants to see that. That thing's terrifying. Like this God, he knows you. This God, he gave you a gift. This God's gift that he gave you is particularly tailored and matched to your person. Do you see that? That's a tremendous gifting. That's a tremendous gifting. I am a terrible gift giver, on the other hand. When Valerie and I were dating, I, I always heard that, that like bath products were this kind of good thing to give. And I was always under the assumption that the bigger the better, the more the better, Right? And so I went in there and then some other friend who probably didn't care for me very much, coming to think of how well this gift worked out, they said, just just find a scent, find a fragrance that you like and buy that. Well, I walk into this, this, this body works shop type thing, and I'm overwhelmed with smells. I'm just thinking, how do you tell like trash from this? Like it's all one big smell. And so I'm walking along, and I got the little and snip, and I'm holding it up to my nose, and don't rub it on your nose. That really, it really jades all the smells that you'll get from there. That messes you up. And so I go through, and I buy her what I think is the most delightful smell I've ever encountered. It's the most delightful smell I've ever encountered. And I buy her the biggest basket of the most delightful smell I've ever encountered. It's it's fantastic. It was expensive, but it was fantastic. I am so excited about this gift. I'm I'm a terrible gift giver. I'm so excited about this gift, though. Well, a couple of weeks later, I'm at her house, and her mom's kind of talking about some trip she had been to the mall, and and kind of and like I want to I want to steer conversation. I'm also a terrible secret keeper, so I want to steer conversation back to this wonderful gift that I've gotten. You would do the same thing. You would do the same thing. Anyway, so I'm trying to steer conversation around, and I, and I say, uh, somehow I make this, this leap. She's talking about dog food, and I say, well, let's talk about soap. <laughs> it was a subtle shift in conversation, and so we start talking about soap, and, and all of a sudden I start shifting it around, and I'm like, there's this amazing like, bouquet of flowers smell. It's the most delightful smell you've ever encountered, and by the way, I have like a lifetime supply of it. I'm going to give it to your daughter. I don't I don't I'm not quite that overt and so I'm talking about just this uh, have you ever heard of of this smell and she said that stuff's foul (laughs) that's the worst thing I've ever smelled and Valerie was close to her and she said yeah that stuff tastes like or smells like trash I'm thinking my nose you liar (laughs) and so I tell Valerie and and, and so I'm, I'm crestfallen and she can see it on my face and she says what's the matter when her mom leaves the room and now I'm not too embarrassed to say it, and I said, well, I just bought you a whole mess load of that trash. (laughs) I'm I'm a terrible gift giver. You see, I was trying to pick something that I thought that I would enjoy smelling in her, but this is what God does here. God picks something that is perfectly, perfectly matched for you. Some of you look at your own giftings, you look at the things that you say, God, this just really takes me out of my comfort zone, this really, I don't know how this works. God's gift for you is perfect. He's not some, some hapless 20-year-old in a, in, a, in a bath and body works trying to find the smell that matches his bouquet and his nose. He has given you a perfect gift, and it's meant to be used. This God has given you a perfect gift, and it's meant to be used, and it's meant to be used in the local body. Paul said that the gift of grace that God has given him is what? It's for others. It's not for building himself up. It's for building others. It's for communicating the gospel. That's what Paul said. Flip over to Romans Romans 12. Let's look at this just a little bit more. (coughs) Romans 12, starting in verse 3. I'm just going to read this quickly, offer a couple of comments, and you can look it up later. I know the the life groups are going to discuss it some this week. Romans 12, 3 through 8. Paul says, For by grace given to me, I say... To everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So he's bringing us back into this understanding that it is particularized gift-giving. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ. It doesn't matter what your gifting is. You exist in the body for building up other people. And individually, members of one another, we have a shared purpose. Verse 6, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. The point Paul is giving us here, and he doesn't give us an exhaustive list. So like, you read this list, you say, I don't see myself. Like, I don't see the unique thing that God has given me in salvation. Recognize this is not an exhaustive list. But the whole point of it is, is that he calls you to relate to others in terms of the gift that he's given you. He calls you to relate to others, to exercise your gifting in the church in kind of the thing to which he's called you, to which he's given you. Now look what he says ultimately works for us in 4.12. And this is something we'll talk a little bit more about next week. Back in, back in Ephesians, he says, all these gifts that you've been given, they are for the work of the ministry. He calls all these, I guess you could say vocational folks, and their job is to equip the saints. And then he turns to the saints. He turns to you. He turns to church members. And he says, this is your job. This is your task that you're to work for the building up of the body. To what end? Until we all attain, verse 13, to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood. He's telling you this is your gifting, like this is the end goal. No matter what thing God has called you to, whether it's generosity and you give tons of money, you give tons of time, you give tons of service, whether it is strictly service and you, you, man, you just love serving people. You're out in the parking lot and you say, God has called me to pick up all the gravel. You're going to be here a very long time. Like, you are probably the one really contributing to the parking lot fund because you're like, I'm so tired, my back is killing me. I love serving, but this is crazy. The thing God is calling you to is for this end. It's building up the body. It's not others' recognition of how good, great, and wonderful you are. It's for the building up of the body. And what is the body? It is Christ's. The church belongs to him, and he calls all of us to work to build it up, to build up the body. Now look what he does next. Paul wants to, in some sense, validate his statement. He's trying to build on the strength of his statement. It's almost as if he anticipated, well, okay, but 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 why? Or why should I believe this? And so he goes, and what he does here is he quotes Psalm 68. Let me read verse 8. It says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Paul's quoting a passage from Psalm 68. What he wants us to see, he wants us to bring over this associational knowledge of Psalm 68, and he wants us to, 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 to let it have bearing on this idea that he's, he's given gifts to men. He's given gifts to men. He wants us to understand what exactly is taking place on this grace given to each one of us. Well, let's look briefly at Psalm 68. As you have time later, you can read through this whole psalm, but basically, let me just tell you this, it is a psalm of of worship to God. It's a description of God coming in this massive display of who he is in an incredibly personal way. Let's look at the first six verses together. He says in verse 1, And God shall arise, his enemies shall be scattered, and those who hate him shall flee before him, As smoke is driven away, so shall you drive them away. As wax melts before fire, so the wicked shall perish before God. So he's talking about how amazing, how powerful God is. He says when this God shows up, he's going to terrify all those who are opposed to him. This is how amazing, this is how incredibly uh, portrayed this God is. When when his enemies see him, they're going to flee. He gives this illustration, this picture. He says they're like wax melting before intense heat. It can't stand before he can it? it? It goes away, it flees. Look what he goes on to say in verses three and following. But the righteous, the followers of God, they shall be glad, they shall exult, they shall praise before God, they shall be jubilant with joy. And then he calls on them to exercise this. He says, look, this is your demeanor. It'd be like if you walked into a room, and, and, and so I walk in, I see Justin in his office, and I say, be happy. And so he's got this big smile on his face, and I say, no, this is why, I be happy. And so what Paul calls them to, he says, worship, praise. What the Psalms has calls them to is worship and praise. He says, this is why. Sing to God, sing praise to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the deserts. His name is the Lord. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him, praise before him. And then he shows this nearness to the brokenhearted, verse 5. Father of the fatherless, protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation, God settles the solitary in a home and he leads out the prisoners to prosperity. But the rebellious dwell in a parched land. The rebellious dwell without the blessing of God. That's what he's painting this picture of here. The gifts God has given you stem from a place of tremendous power in Jesus. And that's the point he's trying to make here. And so he, he uses this imagery of, of God ascending this hill, of Jesus ascending this hill, And he says what he does in here, he is leading a host of captives. So what's he talking about? What are these hosts of captives? In Jesus' ascension. And that's what he's talking about here. When he goes to be at the right hand of the Father, in Jesus' ascension, after his death, he's defeating death. He's defeating Satan. He's defeating all inimical forces. He's defeating all supernatural forces that are been against him. And he takes all of those and he marches them before him. Now what Paul is playing on is this Roman imagery. When the Roman army would go and they would march out and they would go to Gaul and they would go to all these places and they would take captives. And so they go and they take this row captive and they say, we're going to go back. We're going to march back to Rome and everybody's going to see the amazing power of the Roman army. And so they would march you back in and any prisoners you had captured, they would march them back in. And as they're marching them back in, people would see how the Roman army had subjugated their foes, how they had not brought only into submission their foes, but also their foes, enemies. You see that? So this is what Paul is saying here. Jesus, in his ascension, not only puts to death, not only puts into submission, into subjugation, death, hell, and Satan, he also takes all the potential sinful nature of humanity, and he's laying that, and he brings that in this train as well. He leads all captives in this march, and what he's showing in that is his supremacy to them. What he's showing them in that is his supremacy to them. So the question Paul is trying to answer for us is, to what degree is God able to give gifts? The same degree to which he's able to put all those things opposed to his people into submission, into subjection. Do you see that? He says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and and he gave gifts to men. But really where a lot of people's minds go is is in verse 9. Where a lot of people's minds go is in verse 9. And and they miss the fact here that that he's putting all these things into submission. He's putting all these things into subjection to himself. This is how Paul said it in in Colossians 2.15. In Colossians 2.15 he said, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. This is what he displays here in Ephesians. His complete and utter triumph of every force that is opposed to him. We get to verse 9. And it says, in saying, and Paul recognized this, he's asking a rhetorical question. Rhetorical questions are those questions you think would be able to be readily answered. Not necessarily those questions you think people would puzzle over. But so many of us have spent a tremendous amount of time puzzling over this question. Look what Paul says. He says, in saying he ascended, what does it mean But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? And so people try and figure out exactly what that means, and it leads to a lot of speculative uh, theology that, that people really enjoy grandstanding on. But this is simply what Paul is saying here. It's not something incredibly difficult. Paul's making a reference to the humanity of Jesus. Look at it. Paul's already said, he said, what what does it mean that he ascended? So what does it mean that he rose from the dead and sits at the right hand of God? He said, but also that he descended. That he went up also means that he came down. Jesus, in fact, spoke of himself in John 3.13. In his conversation with Nicodemus, Jesus said, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the son of man. What's he talking about there? He's talking about the incarnation. He's talking the fact that God came near to humanity. He's not talking about Jesus going to hell. He's talking about Jesus taking on flesh, Jesus becoming man. In Philippians 2. In Philippians 2, Paul kind of he breaks this out a little less uh, difficult for us in a little bit more clear light. Look over at Philippians 2. Verses 6 through 10. Speaking of Jesus, he said, Jesus, he, he, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, where he greedily held on to. Greedily held on to. But emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What does it mean that he descended? But that he took on flesh. He humbled himself, taking the form of a servant. To what end, to what degree? By becoming obedient to the point of death. And then Paul gives us what is the most terrible way for someone to die in the first century. He says this is how Jesus died. He died on a cross. And it's on the basis of this, therefore, that God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen? What Paul is writing about here isn't some three-day interlude of Jesus in hell. What Paul is discussing here is something so much more clear. So much more profound is Jesus taking on flesh. He who was ascended and also descended to the earth. That God came near to humanity and he did that in the flesh. Paul really wants us to get this. So in verse 10, he, he wants us to understand that there is, there is unity even in Jesus' divine nature in his humanity. In his humanity, he died. in In his divinity, he ascended. Do you see that? So this is what he says. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. This is what Paul wants us to get. He doesn't want us to have the split understanding of, of the Jesus who came and lived and died and this Jesus who sits exalted at the right hand of the Father. What, Jesus, what Paul writes to us here is this understanding he especially wants us to get about who Jesus is. He says, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens. Paul tells us Jesus is high and lifted up. Jesus is far above all things, all power and dominion, that he might fill all things. Look back at Ephesians 1, 22 and 23 as we head towards a close. He says, And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Why did Jesus ascend? In one sense, it's to display his sovereignty over all things. In his ascension, he leads a host of captives. It is in Jesus' ascension that all these things are placed in subjection to him. It is in his ascension that all these things are made to cry out, praise God. It's in his ascension, as Paul describes there in Philippians, it's in his ascension, as Paul gives us right here, that the final purposes of God are fulfilled in Jesus. And he tells us it is that all things might be filled by him. In his ascension, Jesus is putting all things in submission. And in his ascension, he is displaying himself as being sovereign over all things. When we reflect on that, when we reflect on the truth of of what this ascension means, what it shows, and then where our gifts come from, it causes us to evaluate them in a wholly different form and function. And so we find out that we have people in our body that are gifted for service and are not serving. And we come to them and we say, do you recognize that gift given to you and called and entrusted to you for service? And the building up the body was given to you by our ascended Lord? It's not given for our, for our selfish growth, for our own purposes, for our own delights. But it is given for us so that we might use it in the body. And who is it given to us from? Jesus the one who has ascended, the one who has shown himself to be over all things. And so when we ask the question of whether or not we should be investing ourselves in the lives of others, we get slapped. It's a stupid question. We really do. Like if, if you say, oh, and, I, and I go to you and say, Kim, what do you, say, what do you think your uh, giftings are? And you say, well, they're this, well, they're that. And I say, well, how are you using them? And you're like, oh, I'm still trying to weigh things out. Like I'm still trying to look for, the, for my niche. And I say, well, oh, how long has this pursuit taken place? And you're like, well, let's see. I got saved when I was six. I'm now 56. So I'd say, I don't know, 49 years. I'd say, well, let's start with the fact you're bad at math. Let's start with the fact you're bad at math. And then let's go on and say, the, brother, you need to be using those giftings. Or if I go to you and say, well, what do you say your gifting is? You're like, I don't know. Like, I haven't really found anything I like. I'm sorry. Like, did you hear me ask you, what do you like to do? No, what way has God gifted you? What way is he giving you a gift? And how are you using it? It's not an option. It's not a choice for a Christian to look at it and say, well, I'm just... I'm waiting to find the right place. I'm waiting to find the right time. I'm waiting for some things to roll off in my personal, my private life. No, what he's calling us to is full surrender to him. He has given you gifts. You need to be using them. You need to be using them in the community. You need to be using them in your marriage. You need to be using them as you relate to your teachers, to your parents. You need to be using them as you relate to the people you can't stand. You need to be using the gift God has given you at all times. Do you see that? And how can he say that? He can say that. Because the one who has descended and the one who has ascended are the same. We sit as believers in Jesus Christ in submission to the one who is in all, over all, and through all. And from that place of submission, we yield our lives to his good pleasure, for his glory, for his, nera- his renown. Do you believe that? Let me pray for us. Got such a, a simple truth with profound implications on our life. That you sent your son high and exalted into this place. That he would die in our stead, die the death that, that we deserve because we have sinned, we have transgressed your law, we have, we have broken our relationship with you. But God, you sent your son, you poured out wrath on him so that we might be forgiven of our sins and in our believing in faith that Jesus died, that he rose again on the third day and believing in faith that the punishment was poured out on him that was supposed to come back to us and believing in faith that we might be forgiven of our transgressions. God, you bestow rich gifts on us. God, you don't give as the world gives slovenly, haphazardly. God, you give rich gifts tailored perfectly for each one of us, for the building up of those around us. God, you sovereignly lead areas of our lives and call us into relationships, into jobs, into difficulties, so that we might rub up against men and women, that we might spur them on towards godliness, that we all might press on towards godliness, to maturity in Jesus Christ. God, help us to believe that. Help us to follow you in all obedience. And Father, I pray that as we spend these next moments reflecting and, and allowing your spirit to move in our hearts and apply that to us, that we would be broken. That we would be broken as we see missed opportunity. and God, that you would call us to full surrender each and every moment, that you might be glorified in our lives and in our words and in our thoughts. we pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.